I'm very excited to have Rabbi Strassfeld back with us for our third and final session. And we've talked about the catalog. We uh, showed you the table of contents of the amazing book he wrote um, on kind of day-to-day, week-to-week, and the cycle of both the life cycle and the year cycle book he wrote, um, which is fantastic to give to anyone um, as a starting place, no matter kind of where they're starting from. Uh, and then I just want to mention also that um, he and his amazing partner, uh, Joy, have made available once again to us um, the Haggadah that they edited, the um, Reconstructionist Haggadah, A Night of Questions. Um, and so we will be using that again this year for our communal center, which again is going to be on Zoom. Uh, for first night, we will be d- using their um, Haggadah. So I encourage you to purchase one, tell other people to purchase one. Um, to support their uh, work. And they have just been incredibly gracious uh, to offer it to us uh, at no cost. Excuse me, Rabbi Amy, where do we get it? Where do we buy it? Michael, where's the best way for them to get it? Um, probably th- uh, through the, re- you know, the, the movement. So the Reconstructionist Press. Uh, so just go to, you know, re- Reconstructing Judaism. Just go there. Uh, and I'm sure they'll, because it's Pesach coming, they'll have a link. Thank you, Robin, for asking um, and uh, and purchase one there. But um, it's just an incredibly generous thing that they've done to make the PDF available online, again, for us to use um, with so many households. And that's, that's a huge gift to the movement and to uh, the progressive part of the Jewish people uh, again this year. So um, thank you and Yashar Koch, um, Michael, on that. So yeah. without further ado, I will turn it over to you. Yeah, I just actually, um, I don't know whether, I can't remember whether this got mentioned by me or you. Um, I I do a a weekly newsletter that usually is focused on the Torah portion or, or just what's happening in the world. And um, it's, you know, a a teaching and and has uh, other components like uh, uh, I record a, a uh, uh, a song, usually, usually, most often a Hasidic nigun, um, and um, you know it's free. Anybody can subscribe, and you can also just unsubscribe if it you know does doesn't uh, really speak to you. But um, so um, maybe um, you could send out um, the information to. Uh, Everybody's signed up for the class. Absolutely. So, um, Missy, will you please make a note that we need to send out um, Rabbi Strassfeld's the link to his to sign up for his uh, newsletter to both the Torah study group on Friday, the Torah study group on Saturday, and everyone who registered for any one of these classes. Thanks. That'd be that would be awesome. And I and I share it, Michael, with my with my Torah study. Um, So so they are. Uh, exposed, but we should probably make it really easy for them to just. Yeah, they can, you know, and, and someone can just go to my website, which is cleverly michaelstrasfeld.com. So. <laughs> Very clever. George, did you want to say something? I wanted to say hello. No. <laughs> hello. Saying the host wouldn't let him speak. So um, yes. I'll let they... you speak, George Walcon. Um, yes. So maybe the host has not allowed me to speak. <laughs> so uh, Mark said, "Can we do the link in the chat?" So um, again, you know, if someone could just 
type in michaelstrasfeld.com. Sure. Um, yeah, I'll do, it. I'll do it once my screen is not shared. Okay. Um, so let's let's uh, begin. Um, so um, in this for this third and, and last session, um, the, the focus will be uh, a little uh, different in terms of of topic and. Uh, as it was announced, it has to do with what is our responsibility to to other people. And there's a, a concept um, uh, in uh, in the Jewish tradition of uh, there's a phrase "Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh Two versions means the same thing. All of Israel is. Uh, Arevim uh, are responsible for each other. Um, that there is a sense of responsibility, and I and you know lots of other people want to read that not just about um, being responsible to other Jews, but really being responsible to other people. Um, and of course, it's a um, it, it's a, I think a a notion that we try we all try to live by and. Um, and yet it's challenging, right? It's like, where, you know, where does my, where is my responsibility? Where does it begin? And where does it end? Um, and, you know, in the context of the world we live in, where there's so many um, societal problems that are, uh, are the solutions are not clear. Um, and so um, whether it's, hunger, uh, racism, homelessness, uh, it's on and on. Um, you know, uh, what, can I, what can I do? What's my responsibility? And clearly, um, uh, it isn't my responsibility to solve all those problems myself, but it's also not uh, appropriate that I just say, well, since I can't solve it, I can't do anything or you know, it's not my problem. Um, and so I wanted to, to begin looking at this uh, for, and a pa- with a passage you see on the, the screen. It's from uh, Devarim from Deuteronomy chapter 21. And it's this uh, strange ritual. Um, uh, so let me just, uh, uh, I'll read the English um, and you, you could see the Hebrew if you can read the, the font that that's small. Um, uh, and, um, and then we'll talk about it some and we'll see how, uh, how the rabbinic tradition uh, t- takes this uh, text and, uh, and interprets it. Um, so if in the land that the Lord your God is assigning you to possess, right, the, the land of Israel, so this is in Deuteronomy, they haven't gone into the land yet. Uh, so this is basically when you get there, this is what you're supposed to do. There's a lot of that in Deuteronomy. When you get there, uh, it is what you're supposed to bring your crops to, to the temple, etc. So uh, when you're there, uh, if someone slain is found lying in the open, the identity of the slayer not being known, right? So you, there's a corpse that's dis- discovered, you know, out like, and, and, you know, you have to think about ancient times. There are, you know, vast areas of unsettled 
uh, uh, land, you know, um, more is unsettled than settled in the ancient world. Um, and so corpses found, um, um, we don't know who the corpse is. Um, they're not, you know, people didn't have, you know, wallets or cell phones. There's like no easy way to identify someone. Um, and I think underlying this, as we may see, is it's also less likely than today that um, someone might be caught. Again, because there's, you know, vast expanses where um, nobody is living um, and, you know, they don't have uh, fingerprints, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's, there's, there's a situation. A corpse is found. Um, your elders and magistrates shall go out and measure the distances from the corpse to the nearest nearby towns. Uh, <clears throat> so they measure from wherever the corpse is found and figure out which is the nearest town, which is the nearest area of settlement. And then the elders of the town nearest to the corpse shall then take a heifer, which has never been worked, which has never pulled in a yoke. And the elders of the town shall bring the heifer down to an ever-flowing wadi, you know, uh, a stream, which is not tilled or sown. There in the wadi, they shall break the heifer's neck. The priests, sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to God and to pronounce blessing in the name of the Lord. And every lawsuit and case of assault is subject to their ruling. Um, can, do I need, can I? Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, then all the elders of the town nearest to the corpse shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the wadi. Right, so there's this whole kind of strange ritual. Um, and um, the Torah doesn't explain, you know, why I do this and why I do that. Uh, <laughs> Um, but there's clearly um, this ritual to deal with this problem, and we'll come back to what the problem is. Um, and the elders of the nearest town have to do this ritual um, and break the neck of this heifer, whatever that's about. And they make this this declaration. Our hands do not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Absolve, O Lord, your people Israel, whom you redeemed, and do not let guilt for the blood of the innocent remain among your people Israel, and they will be absolved of blood guilt. Then you will remove from your midst guilt for the blood of the innocent, for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Right? So they do this ritual, and the elders say, um, um, they take like an oath, like, we did not shed this blood. Uh, we did not see this happen. Um Please absolve us of what they're calling the uh, the blood of innocent. This kind of sense of blood guilt, right? So there's some sense here. I think underlying this is that something has really gone wrong. Um, uh, blood has been spilt, which you know, um, you know, in the Torah, just as it is today. This is. You know, uh, a capital crime. It's a terrible, it's a terrible sin, um, and um, there's something that's not resolved because uh, the the perpetrator is unknown. Um, the assumption here is not obviously not they didn't catch anybody, um, and this 
there is this notion of blood guilt, that something is wrong in the world um, and uh, it can't exactly be, be fixed, but it, it requires a response. Um, and, um, and that response falls upon the, the nearest, the elders of the nearest city. Um, so on that, the second page, um, there's a text from the Talmud, from Tractate Sotah, um, which, uh, which uh, comments on this um, and uh, quotes the, the verse we just read. And they shall say, our hands did not spill this blood, nor did our eyes see. Right? Quoting Deuteronomy. This is what the elders are saying. And the mission explains, um, uh, asks, and somebody asks the question that I'm sure if I paused here and said to you, well, is there something strange about what the elders are saying? Right? And the Mishnah says, but did it enter our minds that the elders of the court or the court, I think it's supposed to be, are spillers of blood, that they must make such a declaration? Does anybody think that the guilty party in this murder is the elders of the nearest city. So why are the elders of the nearest city saying, we swear we didn't kill this person and we weren't witnesses to this event, right? In which case, even if they didn't kill, they obviously, they, they, ha- they have to come forward as witnesses. I mean, that's also a, a principle in, in, in the biblical tradition that uh, if you, you witness something, you have to testify. Um, uh, so why are they swearing this? It's, it seems kind of absurd. Uh, rather, they mean to declare, the victim did not come to us, and then we let him leave without food, and we did not see him, and then leave him alone to depart without accompaniment. And this is an added note. They therefore attest that they took care of all his, of all his or her needs and are not responsible for the death, even indirectly. Right, so what there's what the elders are saying is, um, he didn't come to us in this city. We are the nearest city, right? So it's not unlikely that he might have stopped there on his journey, um, and and we didn't send him off without food, and uh, we didn't see him leaving, and didn't provide for him. Uh, uh, accompaniment, and if you, you look in the the Hebrew, the last word is levaya, which means uh, accompaniment. To literally to to go with somebody to accompany them, um, and uh, the, the Talmud continues. It's taught. Rabbi Meir would say uh, that um, there is co- coercion, kofin, with regard to accompaniment. That is, you can, um, someone who doesn't want to accompany the traveler, um, you could say, no, you have to do it. Um, And he goes on to say, and the reward for accompaniment is without measure, ain't lost your, which is a a rabbinic expression for saying, this is something of a very high, high value, right? There's no, there's no quantity. Unlike lots of rabbinic stuff, like how much matzah you have to eat, 
How long do the Hanukkah candles have to burn? When it comes to certain things, uh, uh, the, uh, there is no shiur. There is no uh, measurement. There's no specific requirement, meaning you should do it full-heartedly. You should do it uh, as much as you can, as, as expansively as you possibly could. Um, so um, let's stop here before we we uh, we go on and sort of what is what do you what struck you about this this text and about um, this what the elders are saying that that they they did feel responsible for um, and why do I think this text has something to say about uh, responsibility about um, uh, what what do we owe uh, people that uh, that we have some connection to? Um, so uh, let me. Uh, uh, well, first of all, it's like we, we didn't let him go without accompaniment. It's like, how far are you supposed to accompany people who are traveling? It's like, if they're traveling, you were so in the individual rights, you know, uh, kind of culture. But it's like, it's he gets to go wherever he wants. And like you said, you know, do they say, no, you, we have to accompany you because it's our responsibility. Like at the hospital, when they put you in the wheelchair and it's like, I can walk just fine. And they're like, Oh no, 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 no. We, we, until you're out of our doors, we are responsible for you. And so you have to sit down in the chair and let us push you. It's, it's like, okay. So I can get that as a concept, but it's like, how far are they supposed to accompany him? And are they only supposed to give food and feed travelers but not the hungry in their cities. I mean, obviously they're supposed to feed the hungry, but it's like, it sounds like in this case, if he dies in any way because he fainted of hunger or whatever, that's on you because he was a traveler and you didn't feed him. But there's people dying in the city all the time from hunger and exposure and homelessness. So that never occurred to me before that that feels kind of because he's a traveler. Anyway, so. Well, I think that, the, the traveler in that sense is a, a person um, in need because the truth is it, it was dangerous traveling in those days, right? I mean, you know, there's, uh, I mean, you know, this rabbi, I mean, there's a, there's a, a bl- the Gomel blessing, which is supposed to say, you know, um, if you've been in danger, right? So if, and there's, a, there's, there are three or four categories, traditional categories. Um, you know, one of them is like if you were really sick and then you get out of the, the hospital. And so you say this, this you bench Gomel is the, the Yiddish traditional way of talking about it. And um, the remnant is that people do that when they're traveling to Israel. I don't know if they, when they're traveling to Cancun, I'm not sure they're doing it, right? Um, but... Um, and I think that's a remnant of this notion that it was it was dangerous to travel in those days. It wasn't like these days where like no, we, not in really. tourist study and stuff. We talk a lot about the, the the requirements around hospitality was because of this. You know that the traveler is not connected. The traveler doesn't have protection. You know, doesn't have family to come after somebody who you know hurts them or steals from them or kills them or whatever. And so, um, 
but I hadn't really thought about it in terms of Levaya. Like how, how far do you have to accompany somebody who's leaving your town? Right. So responsibility ends. Right. So Rabbi Mayer, the second one says it's without, it isn't like you have to walk two miles. You know, it's, it sounds like you have to accompany them to the next town, right? To the next point of safety. Well, the whole point of this, that's not like, you know, it's a mile away, you know, just to the suburbs, you know, like it's right. The whole point is they're vast areas, right? And, and in ancient times, it was dangerous traveling. And that's why you had caravans, you know, and, and there was, you know, a lot of robbers. So you'd have armed caravans and merchants would travel together because, you know, it was dangerous where like today you, you wouldn't even occur to you, I think. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's, I mean, I think you're right to, to raise the question because it feels like, what, like, why is this so important? There's lots of other more important things. Um, but the, the, the point I think is, um, is you see the responsibility, um, of the town to someone who's just passing through, um, and um, and to uh, be helpful to to that person. Um, I see Susan has a hand, a raised hand. You have to unmute Susan. Susan, unmute. I guess the space bar doesn't work in this case. I um, I had I mean I had a picture of my in my mind of somebody accompanying this person to the next village, and I and I guess in, to answer my own question. It had to be more than one person accompanying the person to the next village. Because when the person gets to the next village, the person who's accompanied the person who's traveling, <laughs> he has to go back. So, <laughs> I'm just thinking that this is, this is a little much. Anyway, uh, that's all I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> I'll mute myself. No that's, no, that's cute. I mean, it could be that as a native, he knows better how to make the trip. Right. And knows like, you know, the, people get robbed a lot over here. But if you go the other way, you know, like maybe that's OK. But you're right. You know, you know, and, and it's right. And, you know, if they're really bandits, having two people may not help that much. Um, but I, I think um, we don't want to, you know, it, it's their reading of a biblical text um, when um, uh, I don't think they were, they weren't, I'm pretty sure this is true. Uh, they, in rabbinic times, you know, with the temple long gone and stuff like that, they weren't bringing a heifer and, and breaking its neck. In other words, I don't think they did this ritual. Um, and, and, and as typically the Talmud does, it's sort of saying, well, wait, what, what's going on here? Um, and I think, um, that um, and that's why I think it's really an interesting text about responsibility. Is that's how they're trying to read it, um, and um, there's a sense that you have to uh, uh, do something, f- f- you know, for this this person. Um, and um, and the the thing I I, I want to point out which underlines this is that 
it could have said it's it's a really nice thing to accompany someone it's a really nice thing to make sure that they have food for three days because that's how long the journey is um but it doesn't say this is a nice thing um or a good person would do this this is what a pious person would do it says that kofin that means you're obligated to do it this is in a sense the law not like best practices it's not an act of charity or like you know oh this this person always you know that's their thing they like to accompany people and they they do that you know out of their goodwill um no it's it's this the striking use of this word of kofin which means like forced you're obligated um you're obligated to do it um and um i wanted to um there's a, another you may have heard this word levaya um uh, on in a different context um any anybody besides the rabbi <laughs> rabbi amy <laughs> for 100 points <laughs> and and actually michael i talk about this at funerals a lot um you know, because people don't know what to do. They feel pretty helpless. Uh, we've had a lot of tragedies recently at KI. We've had a lot of funerals. No COVID, by the way, just all like really a 12 year old, like re- really bad stuff. And um, and, and I talk about this because I think it's so powerful that our word is not memorializing. Our word isn't. Yeah, we have Hesped where you celebrate, eulogize a person. But really, there is no word for funeral. The word is accompaniment. And, you know, live by Yah, same exact word. And I just think that's that's incredibly deep wisdom from our tradition because it's what we can do. It's all we can do is accompany the dead as an act of respect and also accompany, obviously, the family and the mourners. And that that is a profound action um, that I don't that I didn't tie to this text before. But right. That, that both are saying accompaniment is a profound action of saying I am responsible and with calling a funeral a yacht means even after you're gone I am responsible for you until you are in the ground um, and I'm responsible to your family once you're in the ground and that you know it goes past even traveling from a city to another city but but in this sense you're also responsible for not having them go in the ground <laughs> right like and then when they are dead we still have a responsibility, and I just think it's a really powerful thing. Right. So, and you know, and um, uh, George, unmute yourself. George, you have to unmute yourself. George, Dude, there yeah. it is. Good work. Uh, yeah, the responsibility and the accompaniment—it's all. Uh, that's terrific, but it. It is done, the people who are doing it in this instance uh, are not guilty of anything. They are really being assigned the responsibility because of uh, circumstantial evidence. They don't even know if it's the closest town. So I think this has to do with not individual responsibility who have done something wrong, but are we our brother's Keepers are responsible for, but that's responsible for what somebody has done. 
That's my question. I think I think that's I mean like that's what that language of blood guilt there's something wrong there's something wrong in our society I mean in their society right that this this could happen um, and they can't exactly make it right you know because they can't capture the criminal and you can argue whether that makes it right but at least there's some measure of justice right and 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 I think it's you know, in that sense, the leaders, as leaders, have some responsibility for the society, right? Um, but, you know, it, you know, we, we I can't make, I don't remember the quote exactly, but it's that sense like, you know, some people are guilty, but, you know, we're all, there's some responsibility for the the problems in our society. Like, I didn't, make these people homeless, but I live in a city where there are thousands of homeless people, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that, and that's, so I think the text here is really saying there is a a responsibility that the members of society have um, for what's going on, even if they're not guilty, right? That's exactly what, we, we don't think the elders killed the person, right? Um, we don't think he, he asked them for food and they said, nah, you know, we only give, we only give to people who live in the city. You know, you're on your own. Um, but, but there's a recognition that something has gone wrong. Um, and and I, I think that's a, for me, it's a powerful and, and it's more powerful when you take, these issues like again whatever one you want to do homelessness uh, racism and justice right um because uh, i th- think it's easier to see society's responsibility when it feels like it's a broader issue not in this case some one person killed this person and that person is a killer bears basically the responsibility but who bears the responsibility for uh, for people being homeless, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and it's and it's complicated. Um, and and in a sense, this is also complicated because if it was simple, they would just well, we have a system of justice, and and it works, but it doesn't. Um, and um, and I, I think this. I want to posit that this notion of accompaniment is a really um, uh, powerful uh, challenge and and a way of thinking about um, well, what is our responsibility? Uh, I, I'm um, I'm sure some of you have heard of um, Brian Stevenson, who's done a, a a lot of work on on racism and criminal justice. And he talks a lot about proximity, um, that he sees, um, uh, he urges us to feel proximate, um, to feel connected to other people. Um, And he thinks when you feel proximate, then um, you see the person as a person and you, and broadly you act differently. And I think this is close 
to his uh, expression, that Leviah uh, accompaniment. And I would actually argue it's maybe even a takes it another step because it's an active principle, right? And I want to suggest that if this was taken broadly, it would be saying that we can't solve all societal problems. We want to try. We don't give up. We try to make it better, and everything better is better than than it was. Um, but what we certainly can do is try to ensure that people feel accompanied, that instead of feeling left behind, invisible, nobody cares about me, nobody really sees me, or when they see me, they see me in, in bad ways, Um and say, like, look, we we can't solve all the problems, but you should know that we're accompanying you. We're we're not unaware. We're paying attention. We see the problems, um, and 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 we share a common humanity, or we share a sense that our society is is failing, failing lots of people. Um, and we want to say that loud and clear. And I don't know how that translates into public policy. Uh, what would a public policy of accompaniment mean? But I do th- think it's uh, a really uh, interesting thing to think about and a challenging notion of um, that, at, that at least we have that responsibility uh, um, and and what would it mean if everybody felt levaya? Everybody felt accompanying. Um, yeah, I, I I I was going to say this before, and I, I just wanted to add that you know that um, in, in rabbinic times, you know, um, first of all, people lived mostly lived in you know in, in villages and smaller. Uh, they didn't have big cities; they had some, but. Um, and so when there was a funeral, literally, um, the whole community stopped and uh, everybody went to the funeral. And, um, you know, like here in New York, I don't know exactly what it's like out in your neighborhood. You know, the cemeteries are very far away um, <clears throat> in New York because, you know, everything close to Manhattan is more city. Um and the truth is, uh, the custom is that only, you know, immediate family and close friends go to the cemetery. Um, uh, people come to the service at the funeral home and or whatever. And, um, but in rabbinic times, they, everybody would go. And in fact, they would line the road uh, to the cemetery, which usually was very close to town. Because, like, who was going to go travel out in this dangerous, you know, no man's land, right? So it was just outside of town, and they would line the way. There would be like two rows, which we have a remnant of in traditional custom. And you do this at the cemetery as you're leaving. Um, but everybody would line up, and and the, the, the casket or whatever, the corpse, and, you know, the family would walk in between the mourners, and, every, and that's what you did. Everything stopped in the town. There's this legal halakhic discussions about, well, if you, you have to say the Shema, 
in the morning at a certain time, you know, and the funeral is the same time. What are you supposed to do? I don't need to go into the specifics of it, but it was it was really a levaya. They really uh, accompanied the body on its final journey uh, to to burial, um, and and everybody in town went. You know, um, uh, Michael, would you will you share the one about um, the Mashiach and like what you're supposed to like, and then a levayask uh, funeral processions coming. You know, would would you share that that one? I don't know if I know that one. <laughs> Go ahead. I know about the planting the tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The planting the tree. That's it. Yeah. But is there one with Leviah too? That. Well, that the uh, oh, maybe maybe I'm. Missing. It could be. It wouldn't be the same thing. They would say, "Look," and I, I think there. There's also. I mean, part of it's. You know, it's striking that even okay, you could see like, look, this is a living human being, and there's murder, or there could be murder. So life is an ultimate value, but. Now, in a situation of funeral, obviously the person is dead, but there is this notion still of kavod hamed, of honoring, uh, honoring the deceased, um, and it is. I think uh, it just struck me this. It's an example of the community responsibility in action, right? It isn't just the elders or the funeral director or whatever the rabbi. It's the whole town goes, the whole town would go, you know. Uh, I have this vivid memory of I was my year of rabbinical school. I was living in Be'er Sheva in Israel, and um, I was living there when Ben Gurion was oh, well, Ben Gurion when um, Yitzhak Rabin was murdered. Uh, and I would take a bus every weekend to go hang out with friends in Jerusalem because Be'er Sheva is a you know dust town. So um, I I was taking a bus from. Beersheba to Jerusalem, and we were, you know, coming into Jerusalem, and his casket was coming, you know, to go from where he had laid in state to where he was going to be buried, and it was on the news because it was all over the radio. And you know, Israelis are addicted to, you know, now I am too. Robin knows um, uh, to you know news on the radio or on or on CNN, whatever. And so everyone knew exactly where the casket was. So the bus driver knew, and so did everyone traveling by car knew where Robin's casket was. And so everyone knew that we were close to it coming up the hill and everybody pulled over, the bus drivers pulled over and without one sound, which is something in Israel, not one sound, we all got off the bus. Any other bus in the area, everyone got off the bus. All the cars pulled over, everyone stood outside of their car and there was this, profound silence and this profound screaming witnessing in silence um, to his casket coming through all those cars and the bus. And I thought this is so Jewish that, you know, it's like there was two lines on either side, you know, of the road and the highway and, and we all got off and we all stood and we all waited for his casket to pass. And it happened all the way, you know, for everyone else too down the road. And um, it just felt so like, Oh, right. This is like Livaya coming to life in the land of the Jewish people and our customs. And I also think about, um, you know, the times when I was growing up, when a hearse came by, all the cars pulled over. They stopped. They pulled over. Men took off, you know, whatever hat they had on and put it on their heart. 
Um, and like, there was a time where, uh, and maybe it was just because I grew up in the South, I don't know, but like when you saw a hearse, everyone pulled over and everyone paid their respects. Everyone accompanied for that moment that casket and paid the ultimate respect, which was to stop what you're doing and show up. And we've, we've kind of lost that. And like you said, it's immediate family and blah, blah, blah. And only people who are invited. And should I go? Am I welcome there? You know, and, and it's so counter to like both the Jewish approach and what I used to understand as the American custom, which is you stop everything. And of course you show up and anyway. Yeah. You know, you, you, you only get that, you know, with, you know, um, you know, uh, big public figures, I think, you know, um, and, you know, the, uh, I mean, it is that, that notion of respect, which is also the Jewish kavoda made respect for it. Um, I think of, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln, um, after he was assassinated and, <clears throat> Uh, you know, his body, he was buried in Springfield, Illinois, where he was from. And there was a train that went from Washington, D.C. And, you know, and people lined the tracks, you know, all the way, you know, from Washington, D.C. to Illinois to pay respect to, to Lincoln, you know, and um, <clears throat> and it would stop in certain places. And I think that was right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so let's hold that that notion of what what could a company mean, you know, and some of it is just carrying that intention, right? The intention to, um, you know, not uh, ignore, uh, and, and let's take the traveler here as someone in need, right? Rather than what, what do you mean? Like, why do they need my help? They're traveling. They're, probably have money for food, right? So, um, all right. So if we uh, look at the next text, if you could just scroll a little bit. So we see the whole text. Great. Um, so this is a, another uh, Talmudic text. Um, um, it's from Bhava Batra, like uh, 7B, I knew it was someplace. Um, and um, we're going to s- see that it doesn't talk about Levaya here, this accompanying, but it does have the other word that I feel is important in these texts, kofin, that is, you are obligated, right? So first we have uh, uh, the first, the Talmud is, I'm going to the whole introduction, the Talmud has the Mishnah, which is the older rabbinic uh, text, and then the Gemara, which is, Later rabbinic text, which which uh, comments on the early rabbinic text. So the the Mishnah says the residents residents of a courtyard can compel each inhabitant. Compel is kofin, uh, each inhabitant in that courtyard to financially participate in the building of a gatehouse and a door to the jointly owned courtyard. So the, the thing you have to know is they're talking about <clears throat> they lived with courtyards. And home, the sort of private homes were off of a shared courtyard. So from the street, you would walk into a courtyard, and then you would could go into uh, people's individual homes. 
So <clears throat> what the, uh, the, the mission is saying is that if you are living in a courtyard um, and uh, the, some of the people in the courtyard say, well, we should build uh, a gatehouse that is security um, and a door, which I think has to do with privacy um, for this jointly owned courtyard, anybody who's living in the courtyard whether they want to, to or not, can needs to uh, 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 to donate. They can be compelled to uh, pay for the their share, their fair share of the cost of this gatehouse and door. Um, and we won't even read. Robin, someone disagrees, but it's it's a you know technically it's not. A, it's not important. So it's a, again, an interesting thing that um, this isn't just. Um, you can imagine that we have these. It's a very contemporary issue, not about a, a, a gatehouse, but what do the 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 uh, the tenants of a building, you know, need to pay for, or of a co-op or a condo, you know, this shared kind of. Uh, a property. It's different, obviously, in a, a single-family house, but even if you belong uh, uh, a single-family house in a community, um, you know, do you have to contribute to, if there's security service in that community, do you have, to, is that, do you, do you have a choice, or do you have to um, uh, contribute? So here it's saying um, that you uh, you need to contribute. Um so, uh, and I said it, there's two, there's two things here. One is because there's, there's this gatehouse which has to do with security, and the door which has to do, uh, I think, with privacy, right? Because if you don't have this, I mean, people were living on the second story, whether the third story or in the you know hundredth story, it was like basically the buildings one story high in ancient times, right? So. Um, so if you had a courtyard without a door, so everybody walking by on the street would could see in and see whatever you're doing uh, in your courtyard, right? It's, you know, living in Manhattan, you know, first floor apartments are not uh, the most desirable for just that reason. Because if you don't, don't put your curtains or whatever down, people can see into your apartment. Um, uh, so you, there's a kind of a loss on, uh, on some form of um, uh, ease of privacy, which you have on the second and third, etc. Um, <clears throat> so what I, I think is interesting is I think we probably could all agree that everybody should be compelled to pay for security because everybody benefits from that. And the whole thing doesn't work if you say, well, I'm not going to pay, but I'm really glad I have my security, but, um, you know, I'm sticking it to you to pay for me, right? But someone could say, like, <clears throat> okay, I get the security thing, but privacy, I mean, if you want privacy, do it. I don't care. <clears throat> I don't mind people seeing me sitting in my shorts in the courtyard, you know, drinking a beer or whatever I'm doing, Um that doesn't seem so important. Like, why do I, why do I, why do I need to be compelled to 
pay for that. The people that want that could pay for that, you know. Um, but that's not what it says. It says that even that, which is legitimate to want privacy, um, you can be compelled to contribute to the cost of so the Gemara now comes and asks, <coughs> basically saying that, well, it seems to be that having a gatehouse is a good thing, right? Is this to say that making a gatehouse is beneficial? Because if you can force people to contribute to it, it must be a good thing, right? If someone says, well, I want to have a swimming pool, and other people say, I don't, I don't, I don't swim, I don't want a swimming pool, I'm not going to contribute, and I promise you, I will never go into the swimming pool. You can keep me out of the swimming pool. But, you know, I just don't want it. Or I don't want, you know, a tennis court or whatever. You know, it's just not, not, I'm not interested, right? So, but the fact that it can be compelled, it feels like this must be uh, for the common good. And actually, the, the Mishnah goes on. I didn't bring the whole Mishnah. It talks about, uh, can, what about a city? So a city is allowed to have walls and a gate, right, to protect the city. And all the inhabitants of the city can be compelled to contribute to the cost of, of the walls and the, and the gatehouse, the gate of a city. Um, so the government says, well, it seems to be this, this is a good thing. So they say, wait, but we're going to tell you a story. Um, there, uh, wasn't there a pious man with whom the prophet Elijah was accustomed to speak? Right. So there's this pious guy, and um, and Elijah, you know, who's a p- particular figure in the Jewish tradition. Right. He, Elijah goes. The prophet Elijah goes up to heaven in a fiery chariot, uh, and therefore he, Elijah never died. And Elijah comes back. He's getting ready to come back, you know, in a couple of weeks and visit every single Seder in the world uh, and drink all that kosher wine, which would be enough to kill anybody. But um, so, and it comes, uh, Elijah's supposed to be at every Brit, at every circumcision. Um, and in folktales, uh, Elijah um, appears. Um, and sometimes he. He 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 brings food to people who are are hungry, and they, now they have a Shabbat meal. He's this kind of mysterious figure that appears and or uh, saves the Jews from blood accusations um, in, in folk tales. And here in the Talmud, we have this notion that the prophet Elijah would come to this guy who was pious, um, and they would they would sit and schmooze. We don't know what, but clearly. It's a mark of this person's piety because Elijah just doesn't come to every Tom, Dick, and Chaim, right? So, um, so clearly this was a pious person. But then the pious person built a gatehouse. And afterward, Elijah did not speak with him again. So wait, what happened here? So he builds a gatehouse and Elijah stopped visiting. So from this story, we can learn that building a gatehouse must be a bad thing because Elijah feels like this guy's not worthy going to my going to speak with him anymore. He's not so pious if he built a gatehouse. So it's, by the way, it's kind of interesting that the, the Gemara is asking a question about 
Jewish law based on a story rather than based on, a, a you know, Rabbi so-and-so disagrees and says it should be the opposite, right? which is the normal uh, legal arguments that's on legal issues. or diff- I have a different precedent. Um, here they bring this story. It's kind of, kind of unusual, but interesting. They, they take it seriously. So uh, the Gemara answers, uh, all right, sorry, the objection to the building of the gatehouse is the guard who mans a person's, the gatehouse prevents the poor from entering and asking for charity, right? So here's what's wrong. The gatehouse has a guard who says, you can't come in here. It's my job to stop people who, you know, who, who aren't visiting somebody in the gatehouse uh, inside the courtyard. Uh, I don't let I don't let strangers in. So sorry, you can't come in. So that seems to be the problem, but that doesn't answer our problem, right? Okay, so that's that's the problem of the gatehouse, but we still have the Mishnah saying the gatehouse is a good thing. So why is it, wait, why, why did it say that when here it's saying gatehouse is a bad thing? And we explain why, because the guard stops poor people from coming in. Um, so then the government says, this is not difficult. So this now gets typical Talmudic fashion. There's two kinds of situations. There's two kinds of gatehouses. There's a gatehouse that is built outside that prevents people from coming in. And there's a gatehouse that's inside that allows people to access the, the people in the courtyard. Or in other words, you're allowed to build a gatehouse as long as the effect of the gatehouse isn't to shut out the voices of the poor so they can't be heard, right? You can't create a situation where you cut yourself off from the reality that surrounds you, including the fact that there are people in need. So it is perfectly legitimate to say, I want security. It's even perfectly legitimate to say, I want privacy. But it's not legitimate to create a a situation where the wall is so high or the access is so difficult that uh, basically people in need in society no longer have access to you. Um, And that's what the pious person apparently made. And that's why Elijah um, would stop visiting. So again, in a different way, I would say, this is a a text about, not about accompaniment, um, but maybe closer to Brian Stevenson about proximity, um, that you have to have a society which um, hears and therefore feels challenged by the problems in society, the problems of those in need, not a structure in a way that those people can be seen or heard. So let me stop here and, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll go to the third and final text. Um, any um, 
points, questions? Anybody in the gatehouse build business want to? Well, no, it makes me think of what they're doing right now with um, voting laws, changing voting laws, right? That it's like, it's like really meant to keep the voters out. Yeah. You know, that there's nothing wrong with laws and rules. Of course, we want voting to be, you know, legal, right? Okay, good, fair, whatever. Like, you know, so of course you want rules and you need to have very strict rules because the the result is really important. The leader of our country, you know, or the leaders of our country, um, a gatehouse is fine. You want that. Everyone should have to, you know, register to vote. <laughs> but Right. But when it becomes bad is when it's designed in a way that's really about keeping people out who don't have other access and don't have other ways other than this one um, to either make their voice heard or get charity or, you know, whatever. So, nice. Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly it. Right. So you could say when it comes to voting, well, it needs to be secure, like security, like. We all agree on that, right? It should, you know, you can't just say, anybody wants to come, just show up and vote. You don't have to be registered or, you know, we trust you all. No, no, no. It has to be security is is perfectly legitimate. But limiting access is wrong. It's wrong. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I hadn't thought of this text, but I think it's a great, text on that you know it's it's a question of access you know and you you can do it in a way which gives you security but still you know gives access so you can have absentee ballot and you know you figure out a system where it's safe and secure but let's have absentee ballots you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. You know? And you might have days and times where the poor are allowed to come in and ask for charity, you know, like, you know, that you have to open the gatehouse at certain times to allow access, you know, or whatever, but. Right, right, right. I mean, obviously it's a different society. They're living in the ours, <coughs> but, and not, right? Because, you know, in some of the, yeah, and some of the social situations very different, right? Um you know, so people, you know, people live very far away from, you know, there was, a, when I was working on on uh, my new book, hopefully find a publisher soon. But so I was checking about, um, you know, I, I was curious whether in the, in the Torah, you're supposed to leave the corners of your field and and wheat that gets forgotten and dropped, et cetera, for the poor. That was their charity system because it was an agricultural society, you know, so it wasn't, didn't, nobody had coins to give or anything like that. So you would just, you know, leave part of your field and the poor would come and, um, and you know, take the wheat or whatever the produce was. So I was curious, like, now – and. In the Middle Ages, you know, they weren't in the land of Israel, so a lot of the, or, or, the, or there were few Jews or whatever, the, a lot of the agricultural laws were sort of um, suspended. But I was curious now that back in the land of Israel, there are a lot of Jewish farmers. Um, what do they do? And some of them are Orthodox or traditional. So what do they do? So they, uh, 
the answer I got was the problem is that system worked when the poor lived near the fields. So all they did was they would walk over just like the cemetery. Everything was near. Everything was in walking distance. So you'd walk to the fields around the little village you're in and you could get the wheat or whatever. Nowadays, you'd have to travel miles. So having it there, you know, when the the people in need have no way to get there, they don't have cars, let's say, it, then it becomes absurd, right? It's, yeah, supposedly, they, you know, well, I guess no one's coming to pick up the corners of my field, so I might as well pick it up for myself because it's just going to go to waste, you know, but, it, you know, a system that worked, you know, doesn't work because the circumstances have changed, not only because now we're in a money economy, but just even if you wanted to do the corners of your field, it, it, it just wouldn't work anymore, even assuming that it worked in biblical times, which we have no idea. But um, So uh, anybody, you know, I can't, I only see a few people at a time. So if does anybody wants to comment? Um, Missy, do you want to stop sharing for a second? <clears throat> We can see the grid. Cool. Susan? Uh, looks like nobody wanted to share. Susan was going to share. I saw her hand up, but you have to unmute, Susan, and then talk. I sent a request for her to unmute so she should be able to click it. Is, is it working? Okay, I got it. Great. No, I'm Susan, it, it just, sorry. Um, I just want to thank you because this is a part like when I read a part of Torah like this, I, my tendency is to read it historically and think, okay, this is what happened and not search for a relevance to now. But our conversation tonight has given me a, a window into interpreting what I'm reading and, 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 and the relevance it does have. Well, so thank you. thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. That's very nice. And that, you know, that's, I mean, Susan, that's actually the point of these these sessions is to say these texts are really talking about today, you know, and have something to say or, you know, or challenging, right? I don't, as I said, I don't know what a company would mean. I've thought, tried to think about what would that mean in terms of, um, you know, social policy. There was, for, for a time, um, I think this was in New York, maybe it was in Boston, I grew up in Boston, someone decided to have, instead of just having one city hall, they had a bunch of little city halls all over the city, you know, because in a sense, I felt like, well, it makes it more accessible for people in the Bronx to go someplace in the Bronx rather than to travel into Manhattan, you know, a place that maybe they're not that familiar with, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, 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 it no longer exists, so I don't know whether it was a good idea on paper or it wasn't done well or whatever, but it, it, I remembered it when I was trying to think about this, and it felt like, you know, as what Rabbi Amy said about accessibility is a big piece of, of this. You know, if I feel I have access, then I feel, well, like I'm in the picture. You know, it hasn't solved my problem, <laughs> but at least... I I know I I can put my two cents in and and it uh, at least gets somewhat heard, 
right? Um, <clears throat> but if I feel like that nobody's listening, I have no access, um, I might as well not be here. I mean, I think that's very difficult. Uh, uh, another one that I just it was brought up on um, short on <laughs> this week was Rabbi Denise Ager gave this wonderful talk on her new book that is uh, – a collection of blessings and rituals for LGBTQ plus people. And she was, someone asked her something about gender, nine, gender non-binary and, and trans, you know, whatever. And she said, well, one of the things we can do, and I, I need to figure out how to do it permanently because I have to do it every time, um, is put in parentheses, she, hers. And I'm like, because I have resisted that because it's like, what? I'm not gender non-binary. It's pretty clear to most people like who I am. And she said, but what it does is it lets queer people, trans people, gender non-binary people know that you see them, that you don't assume that everyone knows you're a cisgendered female and or that you identify as she, her, even though you are a cisgendered female on the outside. So I just never thought about it that way in terms of accompanying that it's like, yeah, I don't need to put she, hers because it's like, duh. Um, But but it, but it says to other people, I see you and I accompany you by identifying my pronouns to suggest we don't have to be in a binary world and it shouldn't, we, we should all not be so obvious about who we call she or him or, and, um, and I never thought about it that way about Livaya, about accompaniment, but I do now. I, I kind of would use that language now, I think. Yeah, nice. Um, Lisa, do you have your hand up? Is it? I see a hand, but no picture, so I don't know. Where do you, where do you see a hand? Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. That was my your hand. Great, Michael. Great. I can't know that that the little arrow thing by putting it on someone's box, it turns into a hand. Ah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Ah. Okay, let's go quickly <laughs> to the the last text, uh, Missy. If you could put it back, put that on the screen. So this is a, a, a text from uh, Pirkei Avot, yeah, a little higher, so we can see the whole text. Right, perfect. Um, from Pirkei Avot, which is Ethics of Our Ancestors. Um, and it talks about uh, chapter five it, of it. It's all these like pithy statements, quoting the rabbis, etc. cetera. Um, talks about there's, Four types of characters. There's a lot of that in Perky of Oath. Um, and um, and uh, the Sodom, Sodom, evil city, um, is mentioned here. And in the rabbinic tradition, um, there are like the embodiment of evil, the people of Sodom. And there are a lot of, lots of Midrashim about why why, what they did and, and how they were evil. But again, it's not the uh, important. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I want to make sure we have enough time to look at this and talk about it. So <clears throat> it says, Arbami Dot Badam, there are four types of characters in, <coughs> excuse me, in human beings. The first, Omer Shali Shali, Vishelcha Shal. Shelcha, um, mine is mine and yours is yours. This is the co- commonplace, average. 
But then it says, It's, you know, yeah, that's what ordinary people would say. Mine is mine and yours is yours. And then it says, and some people say, here's another opinion, this is the quality of, of the people of Sodom. So we'll, we'll come and try and figure out what that is. Uh, what that it seems a strange comment. And then it goes on, and you can probably guess where it's going to go. Shali, Shalcha, uh, mine is yours, but Shalcha, Shali, and yours is mine, is an Amha'aretz. And they say an unlearned person. You might say an idiot, you know, <laughs> if you want. Mine is yours, and yours is mine. Like, that doesn't make much sense. Shali, Shalcha, Shalcha, Shalach Chasid. Mine is yours, and yours is yours, is a pious person. He's he's a Chasid. He's a, that's the same guy as was talking to Elijah in the other text, right? So he's like, mine is yours, and yours is everything. I renounce everything, right? So that's a pious person. And you can imagine the opposite, right? Mine is mine, and yours is mine. That's a rasha. That's a wicked person. So, the, the those three, the, the second, third, and fourth, yeah, that seems like yeah, you know, and you know, <clears throat> sometimes I find Pirkei vote is like, hmm, that's stating the obvious, and sometimes it's really interesting. Um, so in this one, I, I think the first one is the one that's really interesting because on the surface saying mine is mine and yours and yours is like, yeah, that's, that's what most people would say. It feels ordinary. So why calling it Midat Sodom, the quality of the people of Sodom is really harsh, right? It's almost worse than Rasha, wicked. It's like super wicked, right? So, so, you know what? What could that possibly? Um, what could that possibly mean? Um, anybody want to? Uh, Amy, is that, is that your, no, is that my hand again? Yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> Sorry. In indifference, like ah. mine's mine, yours is yours. I don't care. I don't want to talk about it. I got it. You know, we don't need to have public policy discussions. We okay, whatever. I have my stuff. You have your stuff. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> disengagement, uh, a disinterest, a uh, disenfranchisement that, I don't know, that, you know, Stum got to that place where, you know, they were destroyed for really not caring. And then not caring can lead to, right, actively harassing, you know, or actively, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the connection is, but I. I yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, I mean, again, think in the context of, of, the text we've seen tonight, right? I, I, I think Amy's right, right? Mine and mine, yours is yours. You know, your problem is not my problem. You know, I'm, I'm taking myself. I'm not bothering you. So, like, don't bother me, right? Like, you know, I made it on my own. I worked hard. You know, and, you know, you should work hard and I, I hope you succeed. You know, like I wish, 
I wish you well. It's not like I wish you ill, but like, not my problem. Yeah. Right. Susan just said, not taking responsibility for another, right? Right. So it's the opposite of accompaniment. It's the opposite of, of, <clears throat> of um, feeling this uh, compulsion to be involved with other people. You know, there's a, there's a, George, are you raising your hand? Yeah, you have to unmute. I sent something for him to unmute himself, so hopefully he got it. Okay, there yes. uh, There is, uh, of the four types, of course, these are four types. There's a middle type. <laughs> uh, for example, mine is mine and yours is yours, except I believe in progressive taxation, which uh, is sort of in the middle. Yeah, nice. That's that, We're going to add a new yeshomrim, some people say. George says... Right? Good. Thank you. That's nice. Um, wait, I see someone added something in the chat. Do you want me to unshare my screen or do you still want it up? Um, do, I, do people want to still look at this or you don't need to? Well, how am I asking that? <laughs> They're all muted. Most people are saying like, no, they don't need it up. But Okay, so let's, yeah, let's do that so that everybody can see each other. Um so let me, um, in the, the rabbinic tradition, in the Talmud, there's a number of um, places in the Talmud that it talks about midat Sodom, uh, this behaving like the people of Sodom. And um, one example that's given is um, there's a, two brothers, um, and one of the brothers has bought a piece of land that's next to his father's piece of land. And um, when the father dies, the brother with the land next to the father, father says to his brother, he says, look, um, I would really like uh, to inherit, you know, the part, I mean, each of us is getting half of dad's land. I'd like to, get the land that's contiguous, that's next to the land I already have. Um, each, each plot is worth the same amount. It's not one's better, you know, one's, one's better land for planting or anything. It's equally the same. It's just, it'd be nice for me to have this land that's, you know, next to it. And the brother says no. The brother says no. And um, the Talmud says a word you you know by now, kofin oto. They forced that brother to give to agree that his brother gets the the land that's next to his already. And it turns out that midat Sodom in uh, in some places in the Talmud is when you could do something for somebody else at no cost to yourself, and you don't do it. You know, like, the land was equal. It wasn't like, it was a, there was a debate about which piece of land is the better property, right? Which could easily happen, of course. Um, but it was, it was, no, you know, no skin off your back, whatever metaphor you want to use. And basically, Midat Sodom is being mean-spirited, where it, it shouldn't make a difference, and you could easily just say yes and do a nice thing 
and it doesn't cost you anything. You don't even have to accompany them to the next town or anything like that, like a trip you don't want to take. Um, and me not snowm is like, yeah, I really, I'm just going to say no because I can because I'm not a nice person. <laughs> Right. I'm, I'm from Sodom, like that. Right. So that's so in a way, um, I think one way to understand, as was said, is that if, you know, if mine's mine, yours is yours, you know, but leave me alone. Right. It's not just neutral. It's not just that's the fact. Right. You know, of course, yours is yours and mine's mine. OK. End of the story. It's actually. In that sense, not the end of the story. The story is we're all together. The story is we're accompanying each other, not just the traveler, right? Not just uh, the person in need who's at the gatehouse trying to get someone to pay attention to him, but we're all in need. We're all on this journey, um, and we we want to do this together and have some sense that we're we're connected, you know, that this, it isn't just about like, you know, I have everything I need. End of the story, you know, don't bother me. I'm not interested in contributing to the community. You know, I don't, I don't go to the opera. I don't care what happens with that. You know, whatever it is, like, not my business, you know, just don't come to my door. You know, nobody comes to the door anymore, but you know, don't call me on my cell phone ever, you know. Um, and that, you know, that's, and what's interesting again in that case in the Talmud is that they take what is attitudinal. I, th- I think, you know, in picking about isn't law, the ethics of, it's like, that's just not a, the way to behave, right? These are, these are teachings, these are wisdoms. It isn't like law. But it actually becomes law that is that uses that language again of kofin. We think this is so reprehensible. We're going to tell the brother, the, we're actually going to rule against you. Even though there's actually no law that says this, we're going to say, we're not doing it this way. You know, your brother's getting the land. End of story. That's, that's the way we create community and build community. Um, and, um, and I, I think you see here over and over again that they're moving from, look, this would be the nice thing to do to saying, you know what, um, this tradition, um, pushes people to do the right thing. Not always, not all the time, but uh, on some of these things, we want to, we want to, um, hold ourselves to a higher standard, even if it isn't completely legal, you know, on the legal principles. Um, And it's an interesting that some of these things over time really become, like Midat Sedom, become a legal principle in the halachic system um, that um, can be quoted by an authority to say, we decided this because of this. So let me stop uh, there. Um, I'm studying uh, with a bar mitzvah student whose parsha um, 
includes, you know, all three folks may not support, don't separate yourself from the community. <laughs> it's like um, the, the, the counter side, you know, to this accompanying everybody is because I think it's so easy for us. Um, I got a phone call today and it's like, ugh, I muted myself on Zoom to hear, you know, what the, the message is and um, uh, the voicemail. And it was like, I am so Rabbi so-and-so calling about you know, things in Iran. And I'm like, oh my God, no, 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 no. I'm busy. I have too much to do. I can't deal with Iran. I can't do anything about Iran. No. And then it's like, wow, aim, really? All too froch me at Seaboard. Like, really? You can't even give like this much room to seeing what he wants? <laughs> it's like, it's like, no. <laughs> like, not only am I not gonna accompany, I'm gonna like withdraw from the world community because <laughs> I can't. Like, I just can't. And I th- I think. There, there's, it's the positive and the negative way of talking about it's so easy to pull in to what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, don't bother me. Um, and that, that seems when we first read it, like, how could that be like stone? Really? That's a bit of an overreaction. But really, that attitude, the more, right, the more that happens, the more separated we feel from other people's suffering, other people's pain other communities pain, other countries pain. <laughs> like it just, it's a slippery slope. Once we start not accompanying building gatehouses, gated communities, you know, once we, um, once we say what's mine is mine, which yours is yours. Don't bother me. It's like this progression to, I don't really have to care. And, and, and it's tempting. I got to tell you, it's tempting. <laughs> and um, I'm just aware that the rabbis were so on top of it. Like, you know, we haven't changed that much um, as human beings and our human nature is still, you know what? I can't, I can't like, you know, you stay over there. What's mine is mine. Like uh, my family's good. Thank you very much. And um, it's just a dangerous slope, but I'm just so, I so appreciate your teaching because I think it's so important, particularly now when people are like in their, you know, in their things or they've been working and they, you know, they're being in there behind their shield and behind their masks. And we're all just kind of endangered by each other in a way that, um, that we're starting to come out of, but we're still wanting to be protective. And so I so appreciate these teachings about calling us forward that the tradition says, yeah, we got that. That's okay. But uh, 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 that's not how we do this. So I truly appreciate um, the choice of these texts, Michael. I think it's, you know, it's as, it's so. I mean, I'm just struck by these texts and you know others, um, which are really you know calling us to, you know, or go back to that original the, the principle we started of call Yisrael Ravens over there. We're all responsible for each other, right? Um, I mean, again, expanding it from just Israel to, we're all responsible for each other, right? Mm-hmm. And that you know I. I think I hear that differently, you know, uh, after the Midat Sodom, right? Because what I'm saying is, look, I, you know, I, you know, I'm fine. You know, you should be fine. You look fine. Right, right, you know, like what? Um, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. Like we're we're all connected. We live in a connected world. We know that now more than, you know, ever before in terms of environment. Um 
and and the you know it's really calling us to um and and yet i think it's you know there's there's always some balance right i mean you can't I mean, I'm struck by the Altif Roshman at Zibor, but it's also true you can't be involved in every cause. You can't, right? And in that sense, I, I like the the fact that you could say, you know, I, I actually want privacy in my courtyard. You know, like that, like I have, you know, I have legitimate needs, right? And so, how do you juggle those things? And of course, you know, the tradition doesn't come up with exact answers, which is the challenge, right? It's like, okay, when is, when is this, is this a situation of accompaniment? And when this is beyond anything I can, I can do much about and, and, and how much doing is enough? Like if I give this much because I can't do everything, you know, and, and I can't give every place. So, you know, these are all like hard and difficult choices. Um, but I think the attitude that's called for here is one of accompaniment, one of connection, one of caring, not of the people of Sodom. There's a, there's a, there's a great midrash of the people of Sodom. They said, I mean, this, it's hard to believe that this is a midrash rather than was written like last week. They said, like, you know, we live in this wonderful place. Um, it's very fertile. You know, there's fruit on all the trees. I'm paraphrasing, but and there's lots of gold and silver. And, you know, we're, we're doing great, right? And they say, like, and we actually don't really want to share it with the people who are coming now. So what we're going to do is make sure they don't have any access to what we have. Right. So they're not even pretending that, look, we made it, you know, we worked hard. We came from nothing. We were immigrants. We were, you know, they just like, yeah, we have it. They don't. And we're going to use the law in Sodom to make sure that doesn't change. So what's really bad about them, I think, from this midrash, isn't just they don't want to be hospitable to str- They do the opposite when strangers come to town. They, they, they're happy to send them out to starve. You know, they, have, they want to get rid of them right away, right? So they're completely inhospitable. Um, they don't care, right? It's, but it's, it's more than that. It's not that... It's a town where people are inhospitable. It's against the law to be hospitable in Sodom. So they use the legal system to ensure their values and to ensure that nobody can get what they have, right? And that's why they're the ultimate, you know, evil uh, society. Um, well, we're bumping right up against that. That's why I say it's hard to believe this was <laughs> this wasn't written last week. Right up against you know, it's it's just right, and it's you know I mean it's this you know inequality, you know, and you know they were just, I mean it was so corrupt there they were just like completely honest about it as it were, but but that's 
that's the opposite, right? The opposite of a society of accompaniment, of proximity, of caring, of of the prophets who who speak truth to power and call for for justice. Um, amen, amen, amen. We should write an article. You should write an article, Michael Strasso. Um, amen. Um, um, I have heard from so many people who have listened to these classes afterwards, who people have been in the class, um, just how incredibly warm uh, you are for somebody who is as brilliant as you are. Uh, and it is true that to have those two things come in the same package um, is a rare thing. Um, and truly your warmth and welcome for everybody, for everybody to feel comfortable engaging wherever they are, whatever their level of learning is. Um, they have felt really welcomed by you, um, really informed by you, um, and very engaged in the conversation, If even if they're not talking. Um, and so I want you to know that as a teacher uh, and a Rav, that um, you still got it. And, uh, and for my people, thank you for showing up. Um, and thanks for engaging and listening and being here and uh, digging into this amazing stuff when there's so much other stuff going on and things are opening up and I know everybody's getting crazy and getting busy and, um, but that you have, you've remained intent uh, on, on bringing your full selves here. I really appreciate that about all of you. Uh, and um, so um, I'm sure this will not be the last uh, time we uh, engage Rabbi Strasfeld and um Thank you. Well, thank you all. And hopefully one day, not so far in the future. You'll be here. Come to, I will come to California and we could study together in person. We would love that. We would love that.